Okay, we have been dealing with um, Paul's theology. We are on lesson 26. Can you tell I changed the cover slide? Looks slightly different. Um, <clears throat> I was in a mood. We've been talking about different metaphors that Paul uses for salvation, and so the only appropriate question I have for you at the start of class today is whether you have a junk drawer in home. How many of you have a junk drawer? Our junk drawer is overseen by Becky, so it's incredibly organized. <laughs> Even junk has its place in our house. But uh, um, within our junk drawer, we have keys. And this is where we put keys that I got no clue where they go. I have no clue what they go to. I'm convinced keys breed when we're not looking. You can put two keys in a drawer. You can open that drawer three, four weeks later. There'll be ten. Where did they come from? We don't know. Where do they go? We don't know. I'd like to throw them all away. But there's this nagging voice in the back of my head that says, just as soon as I throw that key away, it's going to unlock something that has money in it. <laughs> or some other irreplaceable value. And so I won't throw away keys. I've got keys that heaven knows what they go to. And I wish I knew, I wish I had a history for each of my keys. But I'm missing some key history at my home. Um, I'm missing, yeah, it's a really bad pun. I put it in the written lesson too. I just can't pass up a bad pun. Um, <clears throat> that's why I play Lewis. It's the punishment. Um, the, the, uh, I, 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 I can't throw away keys. I, I, I wish I had the history. I wish I knew where the key went. Because I just know if I had the history for each of those keys, I could use them to unlock whatever they, they need to unlock. And that came to my mind as I was getting ready for this lesson because I want us to unlock some ideas behind a couple of Paul's metaphors. But to do that, we need to know the history of the metaphors. Otherwise, we're, we're inserting a key that, that the lock wasn't really built for. Oh, we might be able to wedge it in there and make it work, but it doesn't fit the way it should. And so we've been going through some of Paul's metaphors. Last week we dealt with several. We dealt with the metaphor of um, justified and we dealt with the metaphor of reconciled last week. If you don't have those lessons, uh, go on the internet, they are available. This week we're looking at two more metaphors or examples, analogies, um, 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 words that Paul uses to put into his reader's terminology, his ideas on salvation. And the words we're going to look at today um, are the words adopted and the word reckoned. So with us looking at these two words, let's go ahead and start with adopted. Now, I don't know how many of you have gone through the adoption process in America, but last week celebrated the one-year anniversary of two of my very good friends, Rick and Kirsten. Rick and Kirsten had wanted to have a child together for a long time. They tried, they tried, they tried. They weren't able to do so successfully, even with all of the wonderful advances of medicine. So they took that as an indication that it was time for them to adopt. And they started looking at the adoption laws in the United States. And they're tough. There is so much red tape and so much difficulty. I have asked senators, 
in the United States Senate. He said, y'all may disagree all over the board on abortion. There may be people who are, are, are pro, maybe people who are against. There may be people who straddle the fence. There may be people who have exceptions. doesn't matter. If we could ever figure out how to cut the red tape on adoptions and make adoptions easier, where people could have access to medical care and then have a, put a baby into an adoption process, that alone would change the abortion rate in America. But the red tape is, and, and everybody, regardless of where they stand politically on abortion, ought to be willing to do that. But so far it's fallen on uh, uh, inactive ears, at least, if not deaf ears. So join me in that cry. Let's change some of the red tape. My friends Rick and Kirsten had to go down to Guatemala to adopt a baby. And the red tape there, as tremendous as it was, was lesser so that they were actually able to eventually get a baby get the baby a U.S. citizenship, a U.S. passport, and they celebrated the one-year anniversary of Joshua just last week, being in America. And uh, he's been to his first Yankees game. They live in New York. Bless their heart. They took him out of Guatemala and turned him into a Yankee. <clears throat> but he's in a very loving family that has great love for Texas, so things seem to work out. But adoption in America is very different than the adoption Paul used as a metaphor. And if we're not careful when we read through our Bibles and we read about Paul talking about adoption, we just think about it in terms that we think about adoption. But there are some differences. And so uh, adoption in Rome, for example, typically didn't happen with babies. It happened with grown-ups. Adoption with, in Rome is very different. There were two words that were used for Roman adoption. Um, one is adoptio and one is adrogatio. And I've asked Opera Man, where is he? Opera Man, would you come up here briefly? This is going to save us a little bit of time in class. Uh, Opera Man, uh, the stage is yours. Adopted is adoptio. Another word is adrogatio. No time with Classo. Read your written lesson. Thank you, Opera Man. Thank you, Opera Man. We didn't have time to get the wig and the cape on him. <clears throat> yes, there were two Roman words. I put them in the written lesson for those of you who want to be scholastic about this thing. You can read it, but we don't have time to get into it here. So uh, with Opera Man's help, we will move on. As we talk about Roman adoption, by the way, I have, if you ever want to come over to the house and spend a day being a nerd, I have Roman law. Um, I've got the Institutes of Justinian. I've got, I mean, you can pull Roman legal books off of our shelves and read what the law was. This is not, gee, we think... This is what the law was in Rome. Now, I tell you that to say that while you can come over and read it, and while I can read it, and while we can talk about it in here, anytime we're dealing with a subject like this, two warning signs flash in my brain, so I want them to flash in yours. Warning sign number one, Paul was not a Roman lawyer. The intricacies and delicacies of the law he may have understood, but he wasn't trained to understand it, and we always want to be careful 
Because we never want to take Scripture further are in directions that God doesn't intend Scripture to be taken. God tells us a lot of information about Paul. But what I, and I tell you that to say, that's a warning sign in my brain, and I use that warning sign as I prepared this lesson. I haven't gone and found some nuance from some obscure legal decision that was passed during the reign of Claudius to allow for the adoption of this X situation because I figured out some way that that might apply to my faith. I haven't done that at all. What I've got here are just the core basics of adoption that Paul certainly would have known just being a Roman citizen because these were his rights as a citizen. It took a Roman citizen to have the rights to adopt. But we know Paul exercised his citizenship rights in other areas. He certainly was aware of what they were. So we're not di- I'm not offering you things today that are these obscure nuggets. This is Adoption 101. These are the basics. This is what Paul certainly would have known and had reference to when he uses adopted as a metaphor. Second warning sign that flashes in my brain is anytime you've got a metaphor, you've got to be careful that you don't push it too far. There are some limits. For example, most people in Roman times were adopting because of a need that they felt. God did not adopt us because God had a need himself that we would fill. So when we deal with metaphors, we want to make sure we interpret a metaphor consistent with the rest of Scripture. Because if we interpret a metaphor inconsistently with the rest of Scripture, we've clearly pushed it in the wrong direction. Does that make sense? It's one reason that that when we read Scripture, we want to understand with integrity the whole of God's Word and not take little snippets where we risk bringing things out of the context God's placed them into. So with that, let's look at the metaphor. And I want to set it up by comparing adoption in America to adoption in Rome. Make sense? So adoption in America first. Generally in America, people adopt for the good of the child and the desire to have a family. I'm not saying there aren't other reasons, but the general reason would be There is a child in need and I can adopt that child and give that child a life. I have a friend who uh, uh, had a mother come to him and his wife, Bob and Pam. Bob and Pam called me on the phone. It's the first adoption I ever did as a lawyer. They said, Mark, we need help adopting a baby. I said, what's going on? They said, well, this, we were, we were at this rally and, and this woman came up to us. She said, she's pregnant. She's going to abort her child unless she can place it with a Christian family. And so we'd like to uh, tell her that we would adopt that child. Would you help us with that? And I said, certainly, of course, absolutely, easy. They were adopting the child not because Bob and Pam had a compelling need for a child, but they wanted to take care of that child. Rick and Kirsten, on the other hand, that I talked about earlier, they wanted a child and they couldn't have one. So they went to adoption that way. That's generally, those are the ways, reasons for adoption in America. There may be others, but those are the general reasons. Not so in Rome. Rome had a very different culture. 
if, uh, uh, first of all, abortion was legal in Rome, but not everybody had an abortion. Abortion didn't always work. And if a child was born with deformities or a child was born that was unwanted or a child that was, was born with the wrong sex, the family, the father of the family, the pater familia, the father of the family who made the family decisions, the born baby would be laid at that father's feet and that father would make a decision to either pick up the child or to leave the child. And the child would be abandoned and put out on the roads just to die or be picked up by someone else and raised as a slave. A very different family situation. They're not looking to adopt children in Rome generally. The reason they would adopt in Rome is to stop a family from dying out. The family unit in Roman civilization, in Roman culture, was, was different than our family units. Let me explain. Every family had a family name. Oh, we, we do. My name's Lanier. I've got one son and four daughters. We'll better do better than I did. My son better do better or our name dies out from my branch. You know, my girls, unless they can marry a Lanier or do something goofy, I'm a lawyer, maybe when their husbands are asleep, I can change their name. (laughs) You know, I don't want the family name to die out, but I'm not going to go out and adopt a bunch of sons to keep it from happening. The family name in Rome, very important. Not only the family name, but the family estate, the property, all that the family owned. Very important. And every family had their own, every non-Christian family, had their own family gods. And it was the pater familia, the father of the family, who was in charge of the religious worship of those gods. And the fear was if a family died out, there was no longer a father to conduct the worship of those gods, and it strengthened I mean, it weakened the entire Roman culture because some gods were going to be ignored, those family gods. So it was very important in a Roman family that a family not die out, that there be a male to continue the role of the father of a family. And for that reason, they would adopt. But typically, if you want to do that, you don't adopt some baby. You find someone else to adopt. I adopted old John here. Now, I want to adopt someone I know, someone who I know will do the things that need to be done and take care of the family. Now, there was a law that said if you're adopting a child, you have to adopt a child you could have had. The law must follow nature, it says. In other words, I got to be at least 18 years older than whoever I'm adopting. Because it's got to be, it's got to be natural. (laughs) I've got to have been able to have had that person as a child. But within those parameters, I'm going to adopt somebody who's, who's going to be a thoroughbred and run my race right. And this is what Roman adoption was doing. If we, if we look at Cicero, for example, Cicero was complaining. Cicero's a, basically a contemporary. Cicero was complaining about uh, uh, an adoption that was not a proper adoption and the government hadn't taken care of it right. And so Cicero was comparing it to adoptions where the government had done it right. And Cicero says, and I'm, we'll read from the English side of it, um, these adoptions, as in countless other cases, were followed by the adopted party, the, the man adopted, inheriting the name, 
the wealth or possessions and the family rights. That means the religious practice, the cultic practices of that particular God, of the family. That's the typical adoption. That's why the adoptions took place. That's what the Romans were after. The Romans were trying to keep the family from dying out because the family unit was important to them. I tell you that not because God was concerned about his family dying out, but because you need to understand Roman culture to then understand Roman adoption law. At that point, Scripture opens up to us some wonderful points I want to teach. So, before we do it, one last thing we need to know about Roman culture. Um, in Roman culture, the society and the families were built around the potestas. Potestas is Latin for power. The power of the potifamilias. That's the father. Every family had a pater familia. Pater is Latin for father. Familia is father of the family. Every family had it. You say, well, my family. No, no, no. I'm not talking like I have a wife and we have five kids, so I'm the pater familia. In my family, my mother would be, un if, I were, if this were a Roman family, my mother would be under my jurisdiction and power and control. Because I am the man of the family. In Roman culture, if my father were still alive, even though I have a wife, I have a job, I live on my own, I have five children, doesn't matter. If my father was alive, he would still be the pater familia. He would be the father of the family. This was Roman culture. And to a lesser extent, we can still see vestiges of this today. Where? Do you know where? hear some of these words. I spend my life trying not to be careless. Never tell anybody outside the family what you're thinking again. Women and children can be careless, but not men. losing the word so I'm going to take a little save a little time and tell you what he's saying he's saying you know we take care of the family you put the family the family's the concern now Marlon Brando you watch the godfather his family is not just his children and his wife he is the godfather until he dies and then it's Al Pacino but until Marlon Brando's gone it's Marlon Brando and everybody's kissing the ring everybody within his circle who claims him as their pater familia their godfather because the father in roman culture who was in charge of the cultic practices was in essence the god of the family and so it's 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 he the the father in roman culture at the time of paul had the authority to 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 kill his children not just when they're infants he had all power. 
He had all power over the family. The paterfamilia, the ruling father, he ruled over all of the family. Oh, you might go out and get married. Doesn't matter. He still has authority over you. You might have children. He has authority over you and your children. You might have a job, buy a nice house. He owns your house. He owns your job. He has complete authority and ownership of his family. Complete authority and ownership of all of their lands or estates or properties. And complete ownership of any chattel anybody's got. You have uh, uh, slaves. They're not your slaves. They're your father's slaves, the father of the family. The, the, the father of the family had absolute authority. We'll deal with this more when we talk about Paul's views of women. Because it shows how progressive Paul was in that culture. But the father, he, the ruling father, the godfather, he has complete ownership and control of everything. And so what would happen in an adoption is you would take someone out of one family and you would move them over to another family. And the adoption process was very elaborate. Richard, come here. If I wanted to adopt Richard, I was going to use Lewis as an example, but he's older than I am. If I was going to adopt Richard, the adoption process would not simply be, hey, buddy, I want to adopt you. I would have to go to his... I would have to go to his father and cut a deal. And the process itself would be his father first disowning him, releasing him, and then I would adopt him. And the Roman law was real weird. It said before the father has truly released him, he has to release him three times, then he can never claim him again. So after I adopt him, I release him so the dad could release him a second time and I would adopt him then release him a third time, then I adopt him and he's mine for good. I own him and I own his children and I own his children's children and I own any property he's got. I own it all because when he comes in, his original family's gone and everything he's got, his possessions and his debts. If he owes Rich, uh, 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 Lewis $5, when I adopt him, I'm not just taking his possessions, I'm taking his debts. Now I owe Lewis $5. Go sit down, I'm going to make Lewis an offer he can't refuse. <clears throat> that is, I mean, in the movies, that's why Frank Sinatra, maybe, goes to the Godfather and says, hey, I need your help, Godfather. But the Godfather expects him to understand that all things come back to the ruling father. That's the last vestige we've got of the Roman culture. Now, all possessions, all debts, they all get transferred. And the adopted son, I want to tell you three things that happened. The adopted son becomes the absolute possession of the adopter. So the family, the estates, the chattels, any of that that Richard's got becomes mine if I adopt him. I own Richard and everything he has. Everything. He's my property. 
When I die, if he's my oldest son, he becomes the father of the family. He becomes Al Pacino, who wasn't the oldest son, but if you'll recall, the older sons got killed. Once adopted, the original family tie is gone. Okay? Reinforce that. Once adopted, Richard's original family tie, it's gone. Let me tell you why we're doing this. Let's go back to the Elmo. Look at the way Paul uses it. Let's look at some passages on adoption. Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, In love, God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Okay? When God adopted us, we have totally left the family we belong to. And everything that we have is God's. Someone, um, we had uh, Marcy Corbo and, and Ricky Ship from our class got married last night. They did the wedding at our home. And someone said to me, oh, I really like your home. And I had two thoughts. Number one, well, thank Becky. I really have Zippo to do with what it looks like. And number two, it's not my home. See, I've been working on this lesson. I've been adopted. Everything I have belongs to him. I don't own that home. I don't have any possessions. Everything I have belongs to him. Everything. He's also assumed all my debts. Which he paid for on Calvary. And Paul's making that point when Paul says we've been adopted. It's not just a, oh, gee, that's nice. Now we have a a, a father because we must have been without any parents. We must have been orphans. No, that's not the point at all. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, 15 through 17. Let's get it up here. Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're heirs. We're children. We used to be slaves. We used to be enslaved to sin. We used to be children of wrath. We used to have all of these other expressions Paul uses. But now we have a spirit of sonship. We've been adopted. And all of our possessions and all that we are and all of our debts are God's. We're in His family. That's our inheritance. That's our destiny. That's where we're headed. He is our ruling father. We are his possession. He takes care of us. And it is to him that we're accountable. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 9. He uses the metaphor again. Paul says, but 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave. You're a son. And if a son, you're an heir through God. He continues, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that, by nature, are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless, elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Do you want to go back to the old family? You've joined this new family. This is who you are. This is what you've got. You are the absolute possession of God Almighty with everything you've got. Your original family tie, it's gone. Why would you go back and act like you're a slave to that again? When you belong to this father of the family, why would you ever want to go back to the trash family you used to be in where you were a slave? And not only that, but when you transferred all your possessions, you transferred all your debts and all that you owed to sin and all of the bondage you were in and everything God says He'll take responsibility for it. He'll pay the price for it. It's His, not ours. Because we've been adopted. Now let's look at a word, reckoned. Reckoned. Hmm. i got to tell you a story. When I was young... I went to work at this place called Holiday Mart. And I started making money. I made like $19 or so a week. And back then in Lubbock, Texas, it wasn't real easy to go down and open a checking account when you were going to be putting $19 a week in because they charge you like $5 a month for the checking account. And every check you wrote, they'd charge you 10 cents for unless you'd... You, you had more money going in than $19 a week. So mom and dad were already paying their $5 a month for their checking account. So they sat down with me and we worked out a deal. They wanted me to learn this stuff. They said, here's what you can do. You can take your check and deposit it each week into our account. And we're going to give you one of these check registers. Y'all remember those? My kids don't have a clue what they are. I think ATM cards have destroyed all of this. But they still exist. And they existed then. And Dad said, look, take, the, my, take this check register. He got me my own. And you just keep your balance in it. You write down your deposits. You write down each check you write. And as long as you take care of your business, then that'll work fine and you can exist on our checking account. And I thought, this is good. And as I'm a, an older parent, I'm not sure if it was good or not, but it did give them some insight into what I was writing checks for in a way that I didn't realize was intrusive. 
pretty smart. Um, Dad came to me one day and he said, are you keeping your balance? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, because I'm trying to reconcile the month's bank statement. I'm having a lot of trouble doing it. Uh, and, and he said, are you keeping it? I mean, every, every check, you, you keep in your balance. I said, oh, yes, sir. He said, okay. So he went back to the kitchen table where he was working on it. About 15, 20 minutes later, he came back to me. He said, are you sure? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got it. And he says, every, every check, you're keeping the balance. I said, Dad, I promise you. I've done it religiously. I'm, I'm dead on. He said, okay, I trust you. He went back, working, working, and working. About 15, 20 minutes later, he came back to me and said, I want to see. I said, see what? He said, I want to see the, the register. I said, Dad, I promise you I'm keeping it. He said, I want to see. I said, okay. So I went and got it. Well, he starts looking at it. And I mean, I had it all figured out, I thought. I mean, I had Right, the deposit. Right, He's, he says, "What? I thought you said you 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 kept your balance." I said, I, "I have." He says, "Look, this this minus fourteen dollars and thirty three cents in the balance category." I said, "Right." He says, <laughs> "I said." He said, "Well, explain this." I said, well, "Don't you understand negative numbers?" <laughs> and bless his heart. That struck him as so funny, he started laughing uncontrollably, uncontrollably before he could finally get out. No, not in the balance column of a checkbook. I don't. And it was a joke till his dying day, periodically, at least once a month, we'd hear him explain when someone was saying something that was woefully inadequate, yet seemed bright to them. He'd say, well, they must not understand negative numbers. But he then explained to me that by keeping my balance, he meant it had to be positive, because when mine was negative, that meant I was dipping into their funds. And that was not okay without prior authorization from the lender. <clears throat> Which I didn't realize it at the time, but actually was teaching me our Greek word for the day. Our Greek word for the day is reckoned. In the Greek, it's logizomai. Logizomai. Reckoned. It's an actual accounting term, a commercial transaction term. In the Greek, it, it's what an accountant or a, a banker or a transaction person would use for when they put a credit or a deposit in a bank account or in, a, in, in some other account. It means credited to an account or counted in an account. And so translators will translate it reckoned or credited or counted. But Paul uses this term in a commercial sense, talking about our salvation as a metaphor. And so we need to pause for a moment and understand from a commercial sense how Paul's using this metaphor. What Paul's saying is, spiritually speaking, write your check with confidence. The money is in the bank. The deposit has been made. Salvation no problem. You got the money in the bank. You've got it. Let's look at some of the passages where Paul does this. Eleven times in Romans chapter 11, Paul uses this word. Eleven times. Let's look at a few of them. Starting in Romans 4, verse 3. 
Paul says, let's get it up here. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see the word counted there? That word counted is logizomai in the Greek. It was entered into the bank book as his righteousness. His faith was deposited, counted, reckoned as his righteousness. It's a commercial transaction. He can go to the bank on it. He can write a check on it. He's got all the righteousness before God he'll ever need to spend. He's got spending capital. His righteous check will not bounce before God. Because his faith was entered into the column as a deposit that gave him full righteousness. And he says, Paul says, now to the one who's working, this is a, this is not like direct deposit from your work. To the one who's working, then your wages aren't reckoned or counted or deposited as a gift. If you've got a job and you're getting paid and that money goes into your righteousness account, that's not a gift. That's just what you earned. See how he's using it as an accounting word? See how it opens this passage up to the one who works? His wages aren't put into the bank as a present. They're his due. But to the one who doesn't work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is put into his bank account as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God puts into the bank account righteousness, even though you didn't work for it. He's putting into your bank account righteousness when you never did the work to get that money. Because he's counting your faith, your trust in him, that gets counted as your righteousness and that makes it in the checkbook. So your checks aren't going to bounce. Paul continues to use this in, in this uh, metaphor in Romans 4. He says, is this blessing only for the circumcised, the Jew, or is it also for the, the Gentile? We say faith was deposited, reckoned, put into the bank account to Abraham. Let's get back up here. To Abraham is righteousness. But how was it put in there as righteousness? Did God enter that into his bank book before or after Abraham was circumcised? It's before. And of course, Abraham beats the law of Moses by 400 years. It's before Moses got the law. It was never being circumcised, hence a Jew. It was never being a, a, a law follower for Moses. The very initial counting, deposit, reckoning of righteousness is something you could write a check on. Righteousness by faith came before Jew, before law. So it's not just for Jews that that happens. Paul says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So righteousness would be, and again, counted to them as well. It's going to be deposited in their bank account too. And Paul continues to say it. Paul, if we keep going on this uh, chapter 4, 
we get down here to verse 22. This is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted or deposited to him as righteousness. Paul says, but the words, there we go, but the words it was deposited for him weren't written only for him. They were written for ours because it'll be deposited in our account if we believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord. You put your faith in Christ and it's going to be deposited in your account too. That's the way it works. We're deposited, Romans 9, 8. We're children of promise. We're counted as God's offspring. We're deposited. We're reckoned. That's who we are. We're not just then adopted, but our salvation is our faith that's been entered into the checkbook. And by the way, this is the only red ink you ever want to see in your checkbook. But the blood of the Lamb has been counted as our righteousness when we believe in it. Satan comes up to you and says, oh, you're not good enough. You need to show him your checkbook. Because you can cover that check. Not because your wages are that high. None of us have the wages. But because someone made a deposit for us. And that's Paul's metaphor. That's one way he's trying to convey. So with that, we'll pause and go to our points for home. But next week, we've got some more metaphors. So come ready to learn some more culture on Mother's Day. And um, we'll, we'll do metaphor Mother's Day. In the chapel. Without donuts. We'll have to be our own holy food. Okay. Points for home. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Donuts are the holy food. Um, God sent forth His Son so that we might receive adoption as sons. This adoption thing didn't work without there being a price. God had to cover our debts. God sent His Son to cover our debts. Because God has sent His Son, we can be adopted. God does not adopt us because God is needy. God adopts us because we're needy and He loves us. God does not adopt us because He um, needs someone to carry on the family name. But we carry on the family name nonetheless. I am a Christian. I am a child of God. And so is anyone who has put their faith in Christ. And if you have not then just quit waiting. Just do it. Nike didn't get that slogan on their own. Just do it. It'll change your life. Change families. Come get in on ours. See, we didn't receive, we believers didn't receive some spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We have the spirit of adoption of sons. We're in a new family. And it is great. 
We've got a pater familia. We've got a father who looks out for us, who has ensured our future, who has sent his spirit into our lives as a guarantee or a deposit to show us and to hold us and to let us know that this is not the end of it. We're just on the beginning. I heard Lewis preach his, uh, a funeral for his uh, uh, mother-in-law. And he talked about it being her graduation day. This, look, kids, we're in school. But we've got an inheritance that's amazing. So come join our family. And if you're in our family, quit living like you go, hey, I'm going to, when nobody's looking, go back to my old family. Do that other stuff. I'll cut it out. Grow up. We don't need to do that. Let's be serious about this. God gave a serious price for us to be in this family. Let's treat it that way. Abraham believed God. Nick got put down in his bank account as righteousness. And it's not because he was big Abraham. And it's not because he was big Jew. And it's not because God did things weird back there in them Genesis chapters. It happened because that's the way it works. Today, yesterday, 4,000 years ago. We'll never get enough wages from our own work to put enough in the balance sheet to write the check for eternal life. But God will make that deposit for us. And don't let Satan ever get you discouraged. You put your faith in Jesus, you're covered. But let's live like it. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these rich metaphors you've put into the Word for us to better understand what you're doing for us. To help us put it into terms that we live with, terms we can relate to, terms we can understand. Because it leaves us, Lord, on our knees saying to you, Please be our Lord and Father. We trust Jesus for what he's done. We want the righteousness that comes from that. And as we've got it, Father, we, 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 we come with, with joyful hearts into your family. Proudly proclaiming you as our Father. Readily telling the world, anything we have, anything we are and anything we're not, it's all yours. Lord, may we be serious about our lives in your family, having the joy and the confidence to walk in the face of this challenging world as your children until we go to you in eternity. And we thank you for that inheritance in Jesus. Amen.